Because of what Jesus said and did, people wondered who Jesus was. His followers said to him, Some people say you are John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say you are Elijah or one of the other prophets. What about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Jesus' follower Peter spoke up. You are the Messiah. But Jesus told them not to tell anyone yet. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and two of the other disciples, James and John, high up on a mountain. When they got to the top, Jesus' appearance suddenly changed. His face shined like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Two men appeared next to him. They were Moses and Elijah. Then a voice came from the clouds, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. The disciples fell down terrified when they got up and opened their eyes. Only Jesus remained. From there, Jesus and his followers traveled to Jerusalem for a huge festival. Jesus went to the temple to share some of his thoughts with the crowd. There, the religious leaders became very angry at what Jesus was teaching. They knew he was claiming that he was the Messiah, the king they'd been waiting for. Enraged, they picked up stones to kill Jesus, but he managed to escape. After leaving Jerusalem, Jesus continued to teach and perform miracles. He heard that one of his good friends, Lazarus, was sick. So Jesus and the disciples traveled to where he lived. When they arrived, they discovered that Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jesus went to the tomb where Lazarus was buried, had the stone rolled away, and raised him from the dead. Soon it was time to go back again to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Two of his followers brought Jesus a meal to ride on as he came into the city. When he did, huge crowds gathered along the streets, shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! The crowds loved Jesus. But it didn't take long before he began clashing with the religious leaders again. He exposed their corruption and threatened their authority. So the leaders began devising a plan to get Jesus arrested. They met with Judas, one of Jesus' followers, who agreed to turn Jesus in to the authorities in exchange for some money. Then the religious leaders waited for the right opportunity to arrest him. Hello, Mountain. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, you don't sound very convincing, but I'll take your word for it. Glad you're here this weekend. A special hello to our friends at the Bel Air and the Edgewood campus. Give it up for them. Yoo-hoo! We're glad you're there. They're glad we're here. Uh, I want to add my welcome. I know you've already been welcomed a couple times, but maybe you're kind of new to Mountain. I just want to say thank you for being here. I'm glad you are. I think it's going to be an amazing day. It already has been. Um, I, I'm eager for you to meet uh, my friend Greg Nettle today. Um, you know, a lot of you know I like to rock climb. I climb rocks. Well, Greg, he climbs mountains, like literally. Like he goes for the big ones, like the scary, tall, snow-capped ones, like Whitney and Cotopaxi and Kilimanjaro, that kind of stuff. But he doesn't just do it because he has a sense of adventure, which he does, but he does it uh, in order to raise funds to help rescue children at risk around the world. I tell you that because it tells you a lot about Greg Nettle right there, doesn't it? He loves to climb mountains and he loves the things that are close to the heart of God. And you know a lot about Greg already. 
You know, this idea of him being a climber of mountains and tackling mountains in front of him is a pretty good metaphor for his whole life. Um, that's what led uh, uh, Greg to uh, try to go plant a church in Dublin, Ireland a long, long time ago. Uh, he tackled that mountain. Uh, the other, another mountain that Greg has, has ascended is um, church leadership. He's been the senior leader at River Tree Church near Cleveland in Maslin, Ohio for 25 years. And uh, that church has seen phenomenal growth, like from 100 people when he got there to over 3,000 in multi, four campuses and a tremendous ministry to children around the world. Um, a lot like uh, the, the way that Mountain cares about kids through sponsorship and in other ways. Um, you know, uh, the, one of the mountains that they, he and his wife, Julie, and their daughter, Tabitha, tackled a few years ago was adoption and brought LJ, uh, Elijah, into their, into their home. Um, Greg is a monster leader, and, and he is a courageous disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, one of the most recent uh, mountains that Greg is, is tackling is um, he has recently uh, become the full-time president of Stadia Church Planting. Now, if you've been around Mountain, you heard that name. Because we partner with that group, they help us do what we love to do, and that is to start new churches. They help to start new churches in Annapolis and in downtown Baltimore. Um, and we just, remember you gave to, for an offering for a church in Ecuador? That was through Stadia and Greg's Outfit. And, uh, and also, they developed this partnership with Compassion International that sponsors kids in these same places where we're, sponsoring, uh, where we're planting churches. So it's an amazing thing that he's been able to orchestrate. They planted over, like 45 churches last year. They're going to plant 50 more this year. It's an amazing organization. We're really happy to partner with them. Here's the thing I would most like you to know about Greg Nettle. Greg's one of my closest and dearest friends in, in life. Um, it's an amazing thing when we look back on it now. It was about nine years ago uh, at a pastor's conference four of us kind of took a risk and stepped toward each other and said, you know, maybe we're supposed to kind of hang out and help each other through this thing called ministry and life. And we just made a commitment to get together, be together, and help each other end well, stay close to Jesus, and get through some of the hardships of life. And it's, we, we talk um, weekly, sometimes daily. Um, we get together periodically to pray, play, think, dream, argue, confess our sins, and and a lot of other stuff. And uh, I just can't tell you how much Greg and these other guys have meant to me over the last uh, what, you know, nine or ten years of my life. Um, you know, sometimes you meet someone and just being around them makes you want to be a better person. And Greg, he would tell you I'm that person for him. And uh, <laughs> Greg, Greg not only climbs mountains, he's the kind that makes you want to climb a mountain. And that's what I love about him. He's going to do that for you right now. We're in chapter 25 of the story. There may be no more important chapter in the entire story than what we're about to cover right here, right now. And there may be no one better equipped to give it than my dear friend, Greg Nettle. Give him a big, raucous, loud mountain welcome, Greg Nettle. Here he comes. All right, buddy. We'll get him. All right, Mountain. So good to be with you this weekend. Uh, I've been a raving fan of yours for years. You don't know that, but I've been watching you. And it's because I've developed this friendship with Ben over the years. But it's because in many ways you are setting the pace across this country and around the world. And sometimes I, I don't even think you realize that. In your expansion to multi-sites so that you can reach into other communities, your Bel Air campus. And I actually had the chance to uh, tour your Edgewood campus this weekend. And what an amazing outreach over at Edgewood. I just loved it. I love the way you're setting the pace for caring for kids 
You guys rock. I mean, you, thousands of children sponsored around the world. The way you're setting the example for church planting here in the Baltimore, D.C. area, but also in Ecuador and around the world. Thank you. Let me just say, as president of Stadia, thank you for partnering with us. And I will assure you that you're, the money you invest, I mean, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be in Latin America five times, five weeks this fall, and, and I go down and I visit these churches, and I see firsthand, and every time I come away, I, I say, how can, how can I personally invest to plant another church? Because it is, I know of no other better return on kingdom investment than what's going on in planting churches and caring for children. So thank you for investing and trusting in this partnership. But you know, the real reason that I, I really love uh, being here, you guys are going to be raucous this morning, aren't you? It's like you're just fun to be with. It's, you're lively. Yeah, and um, the, the reason that I love being here is, 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 is because Ben is one of my best friends in life. And, and, and you might say, well, prove it. Right? I mean, you can question that because I'm making a claim by saying Ben is one of my best friends. And so I can tell you, well, well I know that Ben has a, a cabin in Minnesota on a lake and he has deep family ties there. And probably most of you would say, yeah, well, tell us something we don't know. We all know that. And I can tell you, well, well Ben hates cats. And you'd probably say, well, doesn't everybody? But I, I can also tell you that Ben loves to snow ski. And you say, well, we know that too, Greg. And, and I, but I can tell you the first time I went skiing with Ben, it was just a few years ago. Well, it's probably about nine years ago now. And, and, and I hadn't been skiing in years. And I, I'm not that good of a snow skier. And, and ben, the very, Ben's good. And the very first run down, ben, ben chose the run. And I didn't know what I was doing. And he took me down a black diamond mogul run, the very first run. And about two-thirds of the way down... He comes out of the blue from behind me, flashing by, and hits me, and knocks me on my face, and caused me to sin. <laughs> now you might say that I am Ben's friend, right? But I can tell you that Ben loves to golf, too, and you'd say, well, yeah, we know that, too. And, but I can tell you that every time I, Ben talks incessantly through my backswing, and now you're saying, you know, he might really be a friend of Ben's. I can tell you that Ben loves children and, and loves being with children at risk, all children at risk. But when we go into South America, I've made several trips with Ben into South America. And I've watched Ben kneel down in the dirt in these poverty-stricken areas of third world countries. And this group of little kids will gather around him. He's just like a magnet. And he does magic tricks. Did you know that? I'm not kidding. He does magic tricks for these little kids, these little hand magic things. And, and, and these little kids are like, and Ben loves on him, and I've seen him take him in their arms, and they sit on his knee. And he's led you and embraced you as the team to love children as well. And I can tell you that Ben loves you as a church. That Ben has stayed up numerous nights all night long to prep teachings for the weekend so that he brings his best from God's best to feed you. And I could tell you about the times when Ben has agonized over decisions for the future. And I could talk about the times when we've counseled and prayed together over direction and, and life challenges. And, and, and I could tell you how much Ben loves you as a team and that he tells me that, that he has the best team on earth. And I've loved being here this weekend and I agree with him. It's an amazing team. You're a team that God has here. But here's what I want to tell you most. 
There is no one that I know of across this country that is a finer leader, servant of Jesus for us to follow than Ben Kacharis. Yeah? So I guess, I guess the question would be, when I claim to be Ben's close friend, do you believe me? So let me take it one step further, because in one case I can make a claim like that, and, and you believe me, because it is. I am Ben's close friend. But let me take it a step further, and let me just say, um, not a, I actually am Ben Kacharis. <laughs> Seriously, I am. Um, I'm married to Carla, by the way. And you might say, well, prove it. Um, tell us, wh when's your anniversary? And I would say, you know, I really don't remember. Which actually is just pr further proof that I am Ben. <laughs> I am Ben Kacharis. And, 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 and you might say, well, uh, I, I, I'm a raving fan of the Minnesota Vikings. And you might, you might ask, okay, well, then who's the quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings? And I'd say, well, actually, no one knows that these days. I am Ben Kacharis. I, I, I might say, you know, I've been at this church all, all these years, and, and you might say, well, okay, if you're Ben Kacharis, then take out that false front tooth that you have. You didn't know that, did you? Uh-huh. And eventually what's going to happen is... Ben's wife, my wife, Carla, is going to walk up on this platform and she's going to look at me and she's going to say, you are an idiot. You are not Ben Kacharis. You are not my husband. And Ellie and Andrew and Nate, they're going to walk up on the platform and they're going to say, this is not my daddy. But I'm still claiming, I am Ben Kacharis. And what are you going to do eventually? You're going to say, this guy's a lunatic. You would. Eventually, you'd, do, you'd walk out and you'd say, get him the jacket. And So in the first scenario, I am who I claim to be. I'm telling the truth. In the second scenario, I'm a lunatic. I read a book recently. It's called Catch Me If You Can. They made it into a movie a few years ago. It's starring Leonardo DiCaprio and a guy named Tom Hanks. How many of you at all of our camp, raise your hand if you saw that movie. Okay, it's a great movie. It's an even better book. But it's a true story based on the life of a guy named Frank Abagnale. Now, this takes place from 1964 to 1967 to help you understand how this could happen. And in, during that four-year period of time, this guy, Frank Abagnale Jr., actually, he was an imposter. He started off impersonating a Pan-American flight pilot. And during that four-year span of time, Abagnale flew two million miles. And he wasn't a pilot. Think about that. After impostering a pilot, Frank Abnegale actually became the chief resident pe uh, pediatrician at a Georgia hospital. Went into surgery with children. Was in the emergency room with children. S oversaw a staff. Never went to med school. Wasn't a doctor. During that four-year period of time, he became the assistant attorney general of the state of Louisiana. It's a little embarrassing. Assistant Attorney General. Never finished high school, this guy, Frank. Passed the bar exam in Louisiana. No credentials. Illegal. Becomes the Assistant Attorney General. During that four-year period of time, Frank Abnegale Jr. cashed more than $4 million 
in fraudulent checks in 26 countries around the world. Now, eventually, because the federal authorities didn't appreciate this guy, they caught Frank Abnegale, sent him to prison. There was a web out. He broke so many laws. Sent him to prison. And when they get this guy in prison, they send psychiatrists and psychologists and MDs in to try to discover what was motivating, what was compelling Frank Abnegale to be such an imposter. Because they knew he wasn't who he claimed to be. They knew he wasn't a lunatic. Here's, here's the most amazing stat. Frank Abnegale, all that I just talked about those four years, all occurred before his 19th birthday. Think about that. He's not who he claimed to be. He's not a lunatic. And they actually determined at the end of their studies, he was simply a pathological liar. So I want you to remember those three scenarios as we move into week 25 of the story. This idea of, of someone claiming to be who they are, and, and they actually are that person. They're telling the truth. Someone claiming, and they're just, they're just flat out a lunatic. And then thirdly, the option that someone's just a pathological liar. If you have your Bibles, turn right now to the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16. And I'm going to start reading in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I'm just going to stop right there because for us to understand what's going to take place in this account in Jesus' life, we have to understand the background of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was about 40 miles north of Capernaum, which was where Jesus spent most of his early years of ministry, 40 miles north. And if you were walking, which is what Jesus would have been doing in those days, he, didn't, couldn't, he couldn't jump in his SUV, right? He, he had to walk, so it would take about two days' journey. And Jesus gets his disciples and he says, guys, we're going to go on a field trip. Well, where are we going, Jesus? And I don't, I don't know if Jesus told them, because Caesarea Philippi in Jesus' day was the red light district of the Middle East. It, it was the area where every pagan god was worshipped. In fact, the, the temple to the god Pan was there. If you know anything about Pan, Pan was half goat and half man. And horrible sexual debauchery actually took place at that temple. Human sacrifice took place there. No good Jewish boy would step foot in Caesarea Philippi. just didn't happen. And so Jesus takes his, his, his Jewish boys, his young men, on this field trip to teach them. And they're about halfway there, and they're going, you don't think we're going to? No. And then they're almost there. And I can just imagine one of them saying, don't tell mom. Right? And another one going, woohoo, Caesarea. And finally they get to Caesarea Philippi and they're up on this hill. It's a real place you can go there today. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now that's an interesting um, question. It's an interesting title. What's the deal with this Son of Man title? It's not one we hear a lot. What does it mean, Son of Man? Well, well, Jesus' disciples, because they'd grown up in, in Jewish teaching, they would have known the Old Testament that we see today, like the back of their hand. And they would have known that in the Old Testament, there was a book called Daniel. And Daniel is a book of prophecy. Daniel saw visions about God for the future, where God would send the Messiah, the Son of the living God, to take away the sins of the world. And these Jewish young men would have known Daniel by heart, and they would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, the Son of Man. I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a 
Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was led into God's presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so when Jesus said, who do people say? And He pointed to Himself that the Son of Man is... All of the disciples would have went, They would have said from the book of Daniel. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. The one who will come on the clouds, who will have dominion over all creation, who will be worshipped for all of eternity. And it was like a classroom, and they replied, Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And you know, those were all very nice. They were very good answers, because... Those prophets were, were all close to the very heart of God. They were, they were great leaders of God's people. Many of them performed miracles. But then Jesus drops the bomb. And he looks at his disciples and he says, but here's the most important question. Who do you say that I am? Do you hear this, friends? Here's the most important questions. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And of course, bold Peter, he answers, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And it's interesting because Jesus doesn't, doesn't rebuke him and say, no, you got that wrong, Peter. Verse 17 says, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father God in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, this rock of this confession of faith, that I am the Christ, the sinless Son of God who takes away the sins of the world, on this confession, this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. They will not overcome it. When I was growing up, I would read this story. And I would think, what a wonderful metaphor Jesus just gave us there. When he says, on this confession, this, this statement of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he's going to build his church, and the very gates of hell will not stand against it. What a great metaphor, this spiritual battle at the end of time, and how good will eventually overcome, and, and evil will be conquered, and not even the gates of hell can stand against God's church. That's a wonderful thing. But there's this whole other layer going on in this text. That's what I love about the Bible. A few years ago, I was actually in Israel. And I got to travel to Caesarea Philippi. And it's no longer the, the red light district. It's actually now just this barren area. I, we have an image of it, actually, we're going to throw on the screen. And as you can see it there, there's actually several caves cut in the hillside. And, and, and we could actually go, and it was probably literally on the top of that hillside where Jesus sat with his disciples and looked down over Caesarea Philippi. And you're right there where Jesus asked this question, who do you say that I am? And the, the amazing thing is there, you can see that one large cave. And, and in Jesus' day, there was an underground river that flowed out of the mouth of that cave. And it, since then, there have been earthquakes that have sealed it up. But in Jesus' day, and we have a modern rendi rendition of, of what, an artist's rendition of what that probably looked like when, when, when the temples were there. And right in the front of that large cave, the, the rocks are still there, we could, there was the temple to the god Pan built there. 
And that water flowed up out of that temple. And what people believed as they worshipped there at the God of Pan was that the gods and the demons, they came up out of the center of the earth, out with the waters. And that's how they went back and forth. And do you know what it was called in Jesus' day? The gates of hell. Everyone in Caesarea Philippi, everyone in the Middle East knew that was the name. It's the gates of hell. And so when Jesus looked down with his disciples and he said, you are Peter and on this confession of faith and not even the gates of hell will stand against it, he was meaning something very specific. He was meaning, look at all those pagan worshipers and all the idols they're worshiping in this culture. Look at the way they're throwing away their money on all the consumeristic things. Look at the way the sexual debauchery is taking place right here, right now. And he says, I want you to know that not even the gates of hell can stand against you and this confession and my church right now. And the same message is true today. In our culture, Jesus' message is saying, mountain Christian, not even the gates of hell, anything going on in your life right now, anything in your community, anything in your family, anything in your world can stand against Jesus Christ lived out through you in His church. And then we have this assurance in that double layer of what Jesus is speaking that not even death, For all of eternity, nothing can stand. No evil will be victorious against Christ and His church. And so Jesus asks these very two important questions. He says, who do people, who do others say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Who do people say that Jesus is? And I know at all of our campuses today, there are people, and you're here, And maybe you're questioning in this and you're asking the question, you know, who is Jesus really? And I'm not sure about his identity and I'm not sure about these claims. And I just want to say to you, you're in the right place. It's okay to ask the questions. Please know that. See, I personally believe that if Jesus, if the Bible doesn't stand up to scrutiny, if it doesn't stand up to questioning, it's not worth believing anyhow. So I'm glad you're here. Who do people say that Jesus is? Students, those of you in high school right now or in college, you may have already had a teacher or a professor, or you will have, and they'll say, you know, Jesus really was a great moral teacher. You should study Jesus' teachings because, man, it is good moral teaching. But I want you to know he is not the Son of God. You'll have some people that will say that. And you'll have some people that will say to you, you know, Jesus is a great example for life. I mean, look at the way he lived. He cared for children at risk. He he cared for the outcasts. He brought them in. He lifted up those in poverty. Look at all the good Jesus. He's a great example for living. But the Messiah, no. Some people will say today that, yes, Jesus, we believe he was a prophet of God. Many of my Muslim friends will say, yes, we believe Jesus was a prophet. But the Messiah, no. The one who takes away the sins of the world, no. One of the most common ones I hear today is that people will say, uh, Jesus is one of many ways to God. But the Son of God? No. Now I want you to think back to our three scenarios that we talked about at the beginning of our time together. When someone claims to be something, they could either be who they are claiming to be, right? Or or secondly, they they could be an absolute lunatic. Or thirdly, they could be a pathological liar. 
There's this great man, his name was C.S. Lewis. He was an Oxford professor who was an atheist and later became a follower of Jesus. He referred to what we're talking to this weekend as the great trilemma. He said, you, you really only have three options when it comes to the claims Jesus made about his own identity. He said, either Jesus was a liar, or Jesus was a lunatic, or Jesus was Lord. Jesus was who he claimed to be, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was who Peter affirmed that Jesus was, that Jesus is the Messiah, the sinless Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Lewis said, do you think a great moral teacher would knowingly ask his friends and his family to abandon their careers, to risk prison, to maybe even risk death if he knew deep down he was a complete phony? How could you say that Jesus was a great moral teacher if he was lying when he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father? The problem with this theory of Jesus being a liar is that would a man known for his great moral teaching knowingly spread premeditated lies about his identity? And if Jesus was lying, do you think he would have been willing to endure being arrested, mocked, beaten, whipped, and spat upon for claiming to be God? I mean, think about this for a moment. Jesus is laid out on the cross. He's getting ready to be crucified, and they put the huge spike in his hand, and they got the hammer ready to go down. I think Jesus, at that point, if he was lying, would have said, Whoa, buddies. Just kidding. I didn't want to be a carpenter anymore, so I made this whole Messiah gig up. Because people aren't willingly willing to die for a lie. Pain has a, a way of flushing out lies in our lives. You see, the option that Jesus was a premeditated, premeditated liar, it just doesn't add up. So, so what about the idea of Jesus being a lunatic? I mean, maybe Jesus was just a few french fries short of a Happy Meal. Lights are on, nobody's home, only has one oar in the water, the elevator doesn't go all the way to the top, eat soup with a fork, cheers for the Cleveland Browns. That would be me. Maybe Jesus actually thought he was God, but he was just deluded. There's a book, actually it's a psychological case study. It's called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti by a guy named Morton Rokiach. And in this book, Morton tells the story of his psychological work with these three men who each believed they were the Christ. They were Jesus, the Son of the living God. And Morton, as an act of therapy, brings these three guys together regularly, puts them in a room, hoping that by each of them being confronted by someone else who believes they're Jesus, it will help them somehow therapeutically. But what ends up happening is when they get together, they start arguing about who is the most holy of the three of them. They start arguing about who has done the most good deeds of the three of them. And eventually their arguments over who is Jesus, which one of them is Jesus, leads them into a fist fight. Finally, Morton writes his conclusion. He said, at the end of our therapy, each of these guys who claim to be Jesus came to the same conclusion. All three, the same conclusion. Each guy continued to believe that he was Jesus and that the other two 
were mentally unstable and should be hospitalized. <laughs> All three came to the same conclusion. Because they were lunatics. When it comes to Jesus, the problem with the lunatic theory is that experts in psychology who have studied the historical records of his life have determined that Jesus was a picture of emotional and relational and psychological health. He was steady in adversity and calm in a crisis. Millions throughout history and today consider him to be the wisest man who ever lived. So if Jesus wasn't a liar and he wasn't a lunatic, there's really only one other option for us to consider. And that is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That he's the Lord. You see, Jesus didn't just make wild claims to be God, but he proved it by living a perfect life. Even Pilate said, Jesus' final days, Jesus is before Pilate to be judged. Historical fact. And Pilate says to the crowds, I find no fault in Jesus. There is no sin in his life. Now, if I stood up here and I claimed to say, I am faultless, I am sinless, there's, there's going to be a line. My, my mom and dad, my, my wife, my son and daughter, Ben Kitschers, they're going to be coming up here going, whoa, let me just tell you this one story. About the time I knocked Greg down when we were skiing. That's what Ben would say. But one time Jesus humbly asked a group of his most vicious enemies. In John 8:46, he asks his enemies, Can you, any of you, prove me guilty of just one sin? Any sin. And they would have loved to point out just one evil thing in his life. They'd been watching his ministry for three years, but even after three years, they couldn't say one thing. He proved he was Lord with his extraordinary teaching. The students of his day said, and I quote, nobody ever spoke and taught like this man. He proved he was Lord by his extraordinary miracles. If someone showed up today and said, I'm the Christ, I'm Jesus, I'm the living God, we would say, fine, prove it, do a miracle. Put, some, put, a, put a large sum of money in my bank account. Make my brother-in-law pay for dinner just once. Through Jesus, the blind received sight and the lame were made to walk and those who had leprosy were cured and the deaf could hear and the dead were raised to life. But the ultimate proof that Jesus is Lord is His own resurrection from the dead, never to die again. No other figure has ever even claimed to have conquered death. Simon Greenleaf was a professor of law and head of the law department at Harvard University. He wrote a book called The Principles of Legal Evidence, and three of his students challenged Greenleaf to take his book and apply its principles to investigating the resurrection of Jesus. He accepted their challenge, and after his study, he wrote, and I quote now, There's no better documented historical evidence than that for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am convinced that you could convince any jury in England or America that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, end quote. And so the big question comes down to, who do you say that Jesus is? That's what Jesus asks every single one of us at this moment. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
It doesn't matter what other people say. It comes down to who do you say that Jesus is? And how we answer that question changes the way we live right now and for all of eternity. All right, let's pray together. So, Father, thank you. Um, first of all, for hearing our prayers right now. And I know that there are those who are struggling at all of our campuses right now, and some of them are wrestling with this question, Jesus, who are you? And so I'm going to ask you, if that's one of you right now, if you're asking that question, just pray it. Just say, Jesus, who are you? And then just ask, and Jesus, would you reveal who you are to me? Would you pray that right now? Jesus, would you reveal who you are to me? And Father God, I'm asking you to make that known crystal clear in their lives. And Father, there, there are those here right now who, like myself, who, who, who believe that you are who you claim to be, Jesus, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God that takes away the sins of the world, my sins and your sins. And so, Father, I pray that, that as we say that together again, Father, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. that you will help us to walk in faith and to trust in our future, that you overcome death and you, you overcome our death and that we have eternity with you and that that changes everything. It is in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.